RDT Systems, baby. Dog tested and dog tough. We've got those soft mouth dummies. Now listen, everybody knows that we need more bumpers. I'm not talking about one or two or three. I'm talking about adding bumpers to your repertoire. I like using white or black and white bumpers when I'm training my dogs for marks and even blinds. You can get the orange ones. I dig it. But add a bunch to your repertoire. And I'm again, I'm not talking about three to six. If you're working on T pattern, if you're working on blinds and pattern blinds, you need a bunch, a dozen, 18. The Soft Mouth Dummies by DT can't be beat. Check them out, LoneDuckOutfitters.com. DT Difference. Let's go. Hashtag Man's Best Kennel. It's Gunner Kennels, baby. It's a kit. We had Addison on the, the podcast, a phenomenal dude, always innovating our industry. And one of the things that he brought up is it's a kit. It's not just the kennel itself. You've got the fan 2.0 for your summer, right? Like it's hot out. We got to keep that dog cool. In wintertime, you got the all weather kit. Keeps that poor body temperature in there so the dog doesn't have to work as hard to stay warm. They also have the magnetic door accessory that keeps that body temperature in there. And then the straps. Everybody thinks like, oh, I'll just go to Home Depot and get the cheapo straps. Well, listen, they developed these straps so that basically you can lift a VW bug with the two straps. So if you were to get in a car accident on the way to the duck blind or the training grounds, that dog is going to be beyond strapped and stay safe. Check it out. Gunner Kennels, baby. Slide into the DMs. We'll hook you up. It's force fetch, baby. It's the number one question we get asked. You don't know how to fix it? Let me help you. Let me get you to your goals. We built a course bunch of videos. I think there's 13 or 14 videos start to finish on how you and your dog can get through the force fetch process successfully. The link's in the description. Be sure to check it out and let me help you and your dog. What's going on, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Lone Ducks, Gundog Chronicles, baby. We got a good one coming up from you. We got a, a new one, a little bit different. We're out of the retriever world and into the spaniel world, and I'm really excited to have Todd Agnew. He is a field trialer in the spaniel world, and he's also a fellow Yukonuba, baby, feeder, Todd, I want you to take a second. I know that you haven't done your intro yet, but I want you to take a second and tell everybody about your kennels feeding with the uke, baby. Uh, well, been happy with uke and uber. Very happy with the new formulas because we're feeding less food. Uh, it is a denser formula, so that makes a little bit of sense. But, uh, you know, I it's got to be 20 years ago or something where uke and uber did their study with the pointing dogs and it showed the, the two data samples, and the one that was fed Yukinuba just had more points. When you look at that over an entire season, uh, it starts to take out any anomalies of good days, bad days, you know, time of the hunt, and so forth. And you know, that study, it always stuck with me. And like I said, maybe that was 20 years ago. And over the years, and we've gone back and forth, we looked at some other foods, we get a lot of phone calls, because. We do a lot of this. We feed a lot of dogs, but we end up back with Yukonuba. So, and last year when they were, you know, putting out the new food and we tested it, uh, one of the things that's hard in the commercial kennel is managing kennel stress. And 
to keep weight on dogs is a very difficult thing. And it's not as simple as just feeding more food because they can only process so much. So I'm really excited about the new food, having good success with it. The vast majority of the dogs are doing well on it. We always have an anomaly like any kennel, but uh, uh, we're just, we're really happy with how much of it they're able to process. Man, I couldn't agree with you more. I think when you look at a place that has a multitude of animals, there's always going to be one or two that don't do as well, and there's always going to be the majority that do. And we've got to monitor those ones that don't do as well. And it, it could be for a, a ton of different reasons, right? Like it could be, you know, I had a buddy one time that had a dog that just couldn't keep weight, couldn't keep weight. He'd pour the food to him, and then you'd have diarrhea, and then you'd have this, and you have that, and he never kept weight, and he put a baby camera in the kennel, and that sucker from 2 in the morning to 6 in the morning would pace and pace and pace and bark and pace and pace. And he's burning calories when everybody else is sleeping and calm. Nobody that, can monitor that. No, and I, and I think that that's the piece uh, oftentimes tied to genetics uh, that is hard for you know the typical dog owner to realize that I just don't believe that any kennel can be 100% success all the time. And, you know, we deal with dogs coming and going and anytime you bring a new dog in, you know, it upsets the apple cart, so to speak. And the kennel becomes more stressful until that dog gets acclimated and gets with the routine and so forth. So, you know, it's really hard in a commercial kennel to have everything very even keeled. Uh, so our measure of success isn't 100%. You know, we're looking for you know, data samples of the norm as opposed to the outliers. That's right. uh, and that's why we're, no, we're, we're really happy with it. I agree. I agree. That's a really great comment. And I think out of all the people we've had on the podcast that fed any type of food, including Uke, nobody's put it that way, that no matter what we're looking at, there's always one out of 10 or one out of 20. But when you're looking at a mass, the success rate at the majority is high. Very high. Couldn't agree more. All right, next up, we got Dogtra e-collars. Everybody knows I've trusted and supported these guys for over 10 years, and it's mainly because of their customer service. If I've got a problem, I can make a phone call, and they are helping me at a moment's notice. And then the next up that's secondary and probably more important than the other is the consistency. When I push that button, I need it to be at the level that I push it, when I push it, not higher, not lower, and not three seconds late. It's very important. And so for all you folks thinking about duck hunting and dog training and you got a one or two dog, you got that 1900S. It is my go-to. You can look at it on LoneDuckOutfitters.com. Uh, if you are a little heavier duty, and what I mean by that is you are a hardcore dog training fool, and you got maybe more than one or two or three dogs, you want that Edge RT. I stand by it. I use it every day. It's in my back pocket from the minute I wake up till the minute I go to bed. Edge RT. You can find them at LoneDuckOutfitters.com. If you got questions, you can slide on into the old DMs on at LoneDuck on Instagram. Next up, we got that Gunner Kennels, baby. Man's best kennel. If I'm riding down the road and it's just me and a dog, I've got to trust that if something were to happen, right? Bad things happen to good people is the old saying as it goes. And 
when bad things happen, I want to make sure that my best buddy is protected. And when you've got a company that stands by, like we stand by that unspoken bond, we've, I claimed it back before anybody else claimed it 10, 12 years ago, unspoken bond. That's what we have that relationship with our dog. And another company that stands by that is Gunner Kennels. The relationship with their dog bred the idea to protect them while they're riding down the road and you can't beat it. Made in America, if you want one, hit us up. We'll help you get into one. Next up, Traeger Grills. Smoke them if you got them, baby. We just had, I don't know, a dozen chicken breasts on that grill. Me and Kevin and his wife uh, and and Carrie is out right now, but she'll have a, a snacky when she gets back. But we just had a bunch of chicken breasts and, and roasted veggies on the old Traeger it cooked them up just right it made me look good if you want to look good in front of all your buddies and friends get yourself a Traeger grill let us know if you have any questions next up we got Kent ammunition Kent cartridge baby shooting that bismuth I don't think I'll shoot anything else at a duck I just I feel good I pull up on a duck and when I shoot I don't want to cripple them I have some ethics. I know it happens. Man, we cripple birds, and the dogs have a, a heck of a time. You know, that's why we have dogs. are a great conservation tool, but sometimes those those birds just, they find a way of coming up short. And, you know, whether they dig underneath the, uh, the muskrat huts or the cattails, and you just can't find them, and the dog can't find them, that's a bummer, man. That's the difference between your limit. That's the difference between leaving a wounded game to to kind of suffer. And when you shoot bismuth at them, knocking them dead. It's just you hit them and they, they hit. So check them out. Tell them that old Lone Duck sent you with that mm, bismuth, baby. And lastly, Waypoint Outdoor Collective. They keep us in tune with you and you in tune with us. All right, let's get in the show. Todd, thank you for sitting through that intro, my friend. Welcome to the show, man. Tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Uh, I'm a Northeast kid, born and bred New England, there for a while, and you know, moved moved around the country a little bit in a prior life. And, uh, I guess I was in Pennsylvania when I got exposed to Spaniels. I always had labs prior to that. Chef is right. Did some hunting on the shore and so forth. But I was in Pennsylvania and some guys I was duck hunting with, they showed up with spaniels. I'd never seen one. And uh, the dogs were jumping off, you know, cliffs, breaking ice on the Delaware River. And like, you know what, that's pretty cool. I think I want one of those. And, you know, things just kind of ended from there. You know, like most people, one dog, two dogs, three dogs, quit your job, become a pro trainer. <laughs> uh, so pretty, pretty standard stuff. Yeah, pretty and, standard. Uh, you know, So we do help them out uh, with some of the other stuff they have going on, but we're pretty pretty much limited to the spaniels these days, primarily English springers and English cockers. Uh, we guided for a long time. Um, you know, dogs around wild game, putting birds in the bag for people. Uh, field trials, training. We've got some clients, male and female. We help with the uh, with the hunt test as well. And these days, it seems like we spend most of our time working with new people, getting them involved, participating. We've got a, a group of people right now that, you know, just begin the field trial. Uh, older women, to be honest, they seem to have a second 
second stage of life and of trying new things. And uh, so I think in the last three plus years now, maybe we're up to 14 or 15 new people that run trials for the first time. So uh, it's pretty exciting. They they keep you on your toes. Uh, It also is, it's fairly rewarding because I think it's easy when this is your business to to get some of the excitement of the newness of these things. Uh, We take a lot for granted because we're fortunate we get to do it all the time. So it's kind of nice being around people that every day is kind of a new day, something new for them. It you know it adds uh, I don't know some some rejuvenation uh, in my attitude. So uh, pretty much where we're at, we're down south now. Uh, I'm down in Georgia. Uh, my wife Christina said I've had enough of the cold, so we came to Georgia. I guess I could have stayed behind, but I chose to come with her. And uh, so we operate here. We spend the fall in the grouse woods. Um, but then we get back down here because the winter's pretty lovely. So your kennel name is Craney Hill. Yes, sir. And mainly focuses on Springer Spaniels? And English Cockers. Okay. And maybe take a second and digress on the difference between, and, and the lab world has this, right? We have the show labs and then we got the field bred. So maybe mm-hmm. maybe take a second and, and explain to people what makes a good field bred Springer slash Cocker versus what they see at the Westminster. Um, you know, to be honest, guys, I I, I try to avoid that converse, conversation. I you know, I just I think good is good, and everybody's entitled to what what they think good is. Um, you know, we're we're blessed. We we're around a lot of really top flight dogs. And so our viewpoint gets a little skewed. We can be guilty of, you know, some dogs that, you know, we push out, we sell, they're really nice dogs, but you know, they're not what we're looking for. And so I think that, um, like the older women that we call the teacuppers that I was talking about, you know, they all come from the show world and, you know, they actually, they've got a lot of good things going on at that group, but they got some problems just like us in the field world. So I'd like to just leave it. I think good is good. We, anybody, whether it's a show dog or a field dog, if it's going to be good in the field, you know, it's got to find birds and it's got to retrieve them. If you shoot them, I mean, that's the bottom line. Uh, we're gun dog people at heart and that's what hunting is. You got to, or for a spaniel anyway, you know, it's not just retrieving. They have to quest and find the game. And then if you shoot it, they got to bring it back. So whether that's a, you know, a show dog or a field dog, I, you know, I don't really, I don't really care to be honest. I, I just, you know, our job is to whatever somebody has, try to maximize that dog with the you know least amount of pressure as possible and uh, give the owner some, you know, some education so they can keep things in perspective. And then if they go away happy, then we've done our job and that's, you know, we've created a good guy, right? Some pro gun, pro dogs, pro hunting. They're on our team. That's what we really should be looking for. Well, first of all, I couldn't agree with that statement anymore. I think anybody that comes from outside the world and comes into the world because of a dog and you can turn them into a believer and have fun doing it with their dog. I don't care what color, size, sex, it doesn't matter. It, it could be a, 
peekapoo, but they come out and want to play and learn, I'm fine with that. But I do think, and I, I, I'm going to push you. I do, <laughs> I, I do think when you look at a Springer Spaniel that's been showbred and, and your Springers, it, it's different breeding. It, they look different. It, it and so it, how it, is that, how is that determined? I, I, you know, I no, we're never going to say that, you know, a thousand show dogs are going to compete with a thousand field dogs. Okay. But, you know, we've seen some show dogs that people can clearly go out and find game and enjoy it. Uh, is it more difficult? Sure it is. Um, uh, but again, uh, I, I think, you know, the field, I love Springers. I mean, this, this is my dog. We won the national. I, it, this, this is my dog. But I'm not going to let anybody in the field rank try to convince me we don't have issues with our field dogs. Okay, so I just, I guess I just don't think, you want me to tell you everything that's wonderful about our dogs? I'll have that conversation. I'm not going to have it at the expense of somebody else's dogs that they love. That's all. I don't want you to, and I agree with you. I, listen, I'll, I'll, so in our world, I'll, I'll play the devil's advocate to make you more comfortable. Everybody in the lab world can't stand a silver lab. And, and I'm the first, I'm on a podcast now with a boatload of listeners and a bunch of them will have a silver lab and it's going to upset someone. I preached about it, talking about Gunner Kennels, the unspoken bond. We all care about our dogs. I, and again, I don't care about size and all that. But when you look at the Labrador, you've got your show labs. They're a little more rotund. They're thicker. They're, they're not bred for speed. They're not as athletic. They have their drawbacks. Can they still duck on? Heck yeah. Can they still be a great family member? Above and beyond. All that. I guess what I'm asking is I, there is a difference between – there is. I mean, I know there is a, a field-bred Cocker Spaniel that is a million miles an hour. And what I'm trying to educate our listeners is, like, if they came to you for a cocker, but their buddy down the road had one and it's laid back and lounging on the couch, and then they come to you because they listen to this podcast and buy one, is it going to be laid back and lounge on the couch or is it going to need a lot more exercise? Like it, it's, it is a different animal to some degree where it, it, it's just different and it doesn't make it well, right or wrong or better or worse. It's just different. And, and I'd like you being the expert on that breed to kind of take that dirty road and say not right, wrong or indifferent, but, but there is a difference. Okay. I'll, I'll only give my experiences with it. So the English cocker, I don't think there's a split, right? There's also the cocker spaniel or what at one time was the American cocker spaniel. That's different than the English cocker. Okay. But the English cocker itself isn't generally, it's not split different gene pool, like the Springers. Gotcha. Okay. So we, so we can eliminate the cocker. If, if your buddy has an English cocker down the road and it's just completely, you know, all things being equal, they're both six months old and it's completely laid back. I would say he just lucked out or it's just a bad breeding and the dogs aren't very good because the typical English cocker is not going to be laid back. They're going to be all over the place. Okay. Um, the, I know nothing about the American cocker, so I can't comment on that. Right. Uh, when, it, when it comes to the Springers, okay, the stereotype would be that the field dogs are, are hyper. All right. I would disagree with that. 
I think that the show dogs actually, uh, the ones I've dealt with, uh, are a bigger problem. That's not to say that, you know, the field dogs don't have energy. Um, I find that the show dogs are more stubborn. Their mouth is worse. And um, they're, they can be aggressive. Okay. So that is as much as, as I can offer. Gotcha. So I, I think, you know, if you want a quail dog, I don't think you get a spaniel, right? You go get a setter or a pointer. So I think that they all have their role. Um, the hunt test is filled with show dogs, right? The, the AKC has opened the spaniel hunt test up to pretty much any dog that has a pulse. And um, so you see them inundated. And you see all sorts of show dogs where people get titles on them, which is great. We've got people participating. The downfall is that those people promote, because they're trying to sell puppies, that those dogs are just as good as some other dogs. It's just not true, but that's a people issue, not a breed issue. We run into so, the same exact thing in the Labrador. And Chesapeake sure. can go, oh, 100%. That's a great point, my friend. Now, now, a good chassis is a good chassis, right? There's nothing wrong with a, a good chassis. But statistically, yeah. you know, it's it's like Ford said, to have any color you want as long as it's black. <laughs> I mean, it's just, that's, you know, you're playing the odds, that's all. Yet, you know, the Yellow Labs have won the national chocolates have won, right? I mean, it's not yeah. that it's not possible. I just, you know, this gets into a puppy conversation. If you're going to get a puppy eight weeks old, which means you're assuming all the risk. Why wouldn't you put all the odds that you can in your favor? And I think that's the point you're trying to make. Okay. Is yes. If somebody's looking for a dog and they're trying to determine a breed, and if they pick their breed as a Springer Spaniel, and they say, or an English Springer Spaniel, and they say, I want a good hunting dog, the odds are overwhelming, um, slanted towards field bred breedings. I think that's a fair statement. A hundred percent. And I would completely agree on the Labrador world. And that, that is kind of what I wanted you to get at. And I am glad that I pushed you a little bit to, to say it because I know it's not comfortable because you're going to upset one person, but they were going to be upset because you didn't tackle it. And so let's tackle it. Um, you know, 10 years ago, when I knew a whole lot more, I would have been more than happy to go on and on and on and tell you how right I am. But the reality is that the longer you do this, like most things in life, the more you realize you don't know and the more open you are that, you know, it, it, there isn't much out there that's black and white or A and B. And so, you know, you just, you just want to be careful of that. And I've, I've got some, you know, some clients that we help. I'm not worried about losing their business or anything, but it's just, they've opened my eyes to what this means to a lot of people. And right. to most people, it's different than what it means to me. And I, you know, like I said, we, we don't need to be losing people. We need to be gaining people. So I think that we all could stand to be maybe not quite as rigid on our soapbox as maybe we all are when we're younger. I agree. I think, I think, you know, if we had to really scale this back and put it in a, a political, you know, the world we live in, it, it's social media. And if you're right, you're right. And if you're wrong, you're wrong. And I don't want to be your friend. And, and that's not, I, I hope you understand. That's not what I want. I just want, yeah, yeah. I just want to teach people who have no knowledge of Springer's 
you know, that, that they are, they do have differences and that they do look a little bit different and they do, you know, like our lab breed, like they, you could get a lab and that lab is going to look a little bit different than my lab and they might act a little different. But, but to me, like you said, a good dog is a good dog. I don't care what color. I don't care what size. If it's enjoyable to be around, likes to hunt, likes to go get ducks, he can hunt with me any day. I agree. I agree. couldn't agree more. Cool, man. I would like to learn. I have zero, and I'm telling you, zero idea of a Springer test or Spaniel test, really, because uh, uh, you could have Boykins. Uh, 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 a hunt test you're talking about or a field trial? Both. We're going to dabble in both. So, okay. so there, uh, yes, the answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> who can compete? Like, can you get a Boykin and a Clumber and a this and a that in all of them? And let's let's touch on hunt tests first. Okay. So the the hunt test, um, I can't even tell you all the breeds that are allowed, but I do know. Yes, Boykins. Essentially, all the Spaniel breeds, except for the Brittany, which I'm pretty sure I'm saying this right, is no longer the Brittany Spaniel. It's just Brittany. Yep. Um, but most people still think of it as a Brittany Spaniel. So that's the only Spaniel that can't enter. And also, uh, I believe the Irish Water Spaniel can't because that's actually a retriever. Right. Um, but uh, I may be wrong on that one. But, uh, but essentially, all the Spaniels, Poodles, Standard poodles and um, I don't know what the other one is, miniature maybe or something. Um, let's see, labs, you no know, retrievers, golden retrievers, labs, uh, they can now enter. Um, Airedale terriers, that's what I mean. The AKC has just opened it up to essentially everything, which the judges are supposed to know that one breed acts different than another breed which I never understood that because if you're hunting upland birds, what difference does the breed make? None of them should point. The flushing dog is supposed to drive in and flush game, right? Right. Regardless of breed, they got to cover the ground. So I don't understand some of that stuff. And uh, we've got friends with the AKC. I mean, you know, they don't have an easy job either. I mean, they're trying to keep everybody happy and participation and so forth. But, uh, you know, the test itself, I'm not a fan of. Um, I wasn't involved way back when, when it first started. So I know it's changed somewhat. So I, I don't know what, what it was like, but it's really, it's a retriever test when it comes down to it. So at the junior level, the dog has to run around the field in some level of control, which is very vague, um, flush a couple birds and they'll try to shoot them. And if they, and the dog can chase and if they miss them, then they'll throw a bird out of their hand, a dead bird, fire the gun to see if the dog will retrieve. Okay. So, um, I'm not for that myself. Um, and then they'll have to make a simple single watermark in the water. Um, don't quote me, but I'm thinking it might be like 30 yards or something like that. Okay. And, and they can gently hold the collar. The dog doesn't have to be lying steady at the water. When it gets to senior, they do the land piece as well. The theory being that the dog should be in more control and more systematically, you know, cover the ground, you know, efficiently. Also, unsteady, it can chase. Uh, same thing if they don't get a bird, they throw one. Um, if they don't get a retrieve. 
and they have to do the watermark. I'm going to say that's, I don't know, 35, 40 yards or something. And then they have to do what they call a hunt dead on the land. So for your retriever audience, think of it as a blind, but it's not truly a blind. So when the Spaniel came up with the game, they wanted to use a hunt dead because traditionally we want to reward Spaniels for figuring things out. It's one of the great gifts of the Spaniel. So when the dog goes out for a retrieve, you actually, not so much the hunt test, but in the field trial, if it's what we believe is a marked retrieve, you would, if you have to start handling, you know, you're sinking quickly, right? right? The dog should figure it out, should stay out there, should not come back in. And okay. Well, um, the thought on the hunt dead was you would send the dog out in a general locale and the dog would hunt the bird up in that, let's call it a tight hunt zone. All right. To come up with the bird. A lot of times they'll say, Hey, the bird's over, you know, by that tree. So they'll actually give instructions more like a blind. Uh, but the theory was that the dog had to hunt it up and, and at senior level. I'm going to say maybe that's 40 yards and they usually always require the dog to do some type of transition. So they start in the open and then have to go through cover and then into the woods or they start in cover, have to go across a couple paths or something. So they want the, the dog to show some transition of cover aptitude. And then in the master level, again, you do the groundwork, but the dog has to be steady to wing and shot. So that means when it flushes game, it can no longer chase. Everyone thinks of it as a dog has to sit down. Technically, they don't have to sit down. They just can't be chasing. Um, you know, they make their retrieves. They should cover the ground well, use the wind and so forth. They have the watermark, which, again, I don't know, 45, 50 yards or something. Um, they have the hunt dead, and that's increased to maybe 50 yards. Um, and then they have to do a water blind, which generally involves going across some channel of water up onto land and to where the bird is and, and bringing it back. <clears throat> Excuse me. That, that is the hunt test. And like any of the, any of the hunt tests out there, you know, you get, you pass so many and then you get the hunt test title and then you move up to the next level and so forth. And I think they've added some, you know, master excellent things. So then once you get master hunter, you can keep playing, or of course they want you to keep playing. Yeah, and yeah. you can, and if you get scores above X or whatever it is, then you've got a master excellent pass or something or another. But you know, I, I don't participate in the hunt tests, so I can't say that I'm an expert in all the nuances of that. Gotcha. Um, it's when it, comes it to sounds the, similar. No, it sounds similar to what we have. You got your base level, your medium level, and and you know you're pretty darn strict. Uh, on the high end. Um, you, you, listen, I'm just going to be brutally honest with you. It's not. It's just not even close. The retriever hunt test is so much more demanding. The level of excellence. You know, if you have, you guys call it a master as well, correct? Right. Okay. So a master retriever, that's a serious dog. Okay. A master spaniel, it could be a serious dog. It isn't necessarily a serious dog. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and that's my gripe with the, with the hunt test. And, and, and there's two circuits around the country. So there's the show circuit, okay, where 
all the show dogs go and play and they keep recirculating the same show judges. And then you have the other circuit, which tends to be serious hunters. A lot of the field trial dogs are in it. A lot of those types of judges. Um, and you can have, you know, really different expectations. So they, they really need to clean that up to be honest. But, um, when you get to the field trials, um, you know, it's, it's more stringent in the rules as well as the expectation. So the cockers, only cockers, but, but American cockers can run as well. Okay, so, um, but only English cockers and American cockers. Um, in the springers, it's only springers. Uh, of course, a show springer is still an English springer spaniel. So you can enter your show springer if you wanted to. And, right. and some people have from, you know, from time to time. Um, but they, but those run separate. There are no other breeds in Canada. The cockers run with the springers. Okay. So, and the history of the game in Canada, there's been one cocker that's ever won the national. Wow. Okay, so obviously, obviously that was a pretty serious dog. And, um, you know, a, a good cocker is just an awesome dog. But, you know, when they got to compete against the springers, they're clearly at a disadvantage just in, you know, springers cover more ground, they're bigger, strong, you know, it's just the way it is. Um, so some of it is expectations out of the judges. Um, but, you know, that'd be like me taking my spaniel to go compete against the labs. Doesn't mean my spaniel's bad. It's just, just you know, and he can have, yeah, he can have his day, but, you know, no one's going to confuse a spaniel with a national champion, you know, retriever, right? <laughs> it's, just, it's just, you know, it's different. But in the, so in the um, field trials, uh, you know, they're picking the best dog that day. So everyone can't go home happy, right? Not everyone can get a ribbon. It's not against a standard. It's against the other dogs. And in both the Cockers and the Springers, they're going to run three series. So in the first series, I'm going to run under Judge A. And then I'm going to have another dog next to me running under Judge B. And so there's two dogs running at the same time. He has to cover his ground. I have to cover my ground. Without going into too much detail, there's, you know, some rules about crossing and honoring the other dog and, and so forth. Same but field, after, Same field, technically uh, same birds? No, no, di- di- different birds. He's responsible for the game on his beat. I'm responsible for the game on my beat. But we're right, you know, we're next to each other. But but don't think of it as the dog's crossing over. Gotcha. Okay. Um. So all well, the dogs from a dog. Just, hold on, real quick. From a dog trainer's yeah. perspective, that's going to make those dogs ultra competitive if they can see each other working. Correct. Uh, it depends on the dog. Kind of like horses, right? Some horses are really competitive. Uh, dogs are the same way. Some just roll with it, and then some, you know, they won't do anything right. All they care about is being ahead of the other dog. That's right. So it just, you know, it just depends on the dog. But they're not um, far enough away. Like the other dog could influence the other dog. If Oh, absolutely. Because okay. the other dog, so here's a classic example. My dog puts a bird up. It flies across the other dog's beat and gets shot. Well, the dog on the other side has to sit there, out there. It could be, you know, 30 yards from the handler. It could be 15 yards from where the bird fell. And the dog's got to sit out there while my dog goes and makes the retrieve. That's right. Okay. So, I mean, there are things that, you know, that can happen, obviously. But after all the dogs run, 
everyone, all the dogs that Judge A likes will go on to the second series and run under Judge B. And vice versa, the dogs that Judge B likes will go on to the second series and run under Judge A. Okay. Okay. Then same thing happens in the second series. And the judges get together and the dogs that they collect, you know, together they agree on that they like, then go to the third series. And in the third series, that you don't run with a bracemate. You run by yourself under both judges. Okay, so on a weekend trial, you're going to run three series and all the dogs that get through, you know, judges go back and powwow and they pick, you know, first, second, third, or fourth. That could be, all right, uh, let's talk about that because I understand it. But because Judge A is judging my dog now and I have a stellar run, crush it, like you're in first place. Mm-hmm. Then I go to second series and Judge B is like, I don't know. I just don't like that dog. And he does good, but he doesn't do great, but he does good. Now they come together and they sit there and, and what do they say? Like, Judge A's going to be like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. This this dog was freaking on fire. And Judge B's like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I thought he was an okay dog. How do they, without being able to simultaneously do that, how, how can they come to a third series and be on the same well, page. So, you know, because the more you run a dog, the more the dogs will separate themselves, the less judging is going to become required, right? Cause things just happen and dogs blow up and they, you know, so the longer you run the dogs, the more opportunities you give the dog, some of those dogs are going to go away on their own. So on a normal weekend, let's say 30 dogs, you know, you're probably going to lose, you know, five dogs won't go to the second series, right? Something happened. I failed to retrieve. They broke down just a, a normal run. I mean, you can have a trial where you lost half the field. I mean, just a bad day, right. but let's say you lost five dogs. Well, so there's 25 dogs left going to the second series. Trust me most of those dogs have already shot themselves in the foot. They just didn't do anything that actually kicks them out right there on the spot. So they didn't break, they didn't fail to retrieve, they didn't poach a bird. They, you know, they just, but they weren't good. The fines weren't great. The spaniel trials are all about bird finding. So they, you know, you see birds get up. That doesn't mean it was a good find. I mean, the, the fines are, you know, and the tarp, you can't see from the gallery. I mean, the judge has the view. He's right up there, you know, with the handler and the dog. But so I'm going to say that, you know, if there's 30 dogs that start the trial, generally you're going to get about 10 dogs back to the third. And of those 10 dogs, there's probably four to six, four or five that both judges liked. They didn't necessarily both have them as number one. You know, but they, but they both agreed, yeah, I, I definitely want to see this dog in the third series. And then you end up with a group in, let's call it the second tier. Now, if they both agreed on eight dogs, they say, yeah, we definitely, this dog's back, this dog's back. And they had eight, they're probably going to cut, cut it at eight. But let's say they only had four or five. Well, things happen in the third series, right? Dogs blow up, circumstances, you know, pop up. So the second tier of dogs that, not that they were bad, like you said, they could have been good, but they just weren't 
quite as good. And they, or nothing happened to really separate them from the other dogs. Well, that group could be two dogs. It could be eight dogs. Well, generally, if they're going to bring a dog back from that group, it becomes an all or nothing. So you could go from four or five dogs back to eight dogs, 10 dogs, 15, depending on how big that group is. But that group, really, it's only there because the work was high enough quality that they're willing to take another look at the dog. But they're going to, you know, they're going to need some dogs to blow out or they're not going to get a ribbon. Okay. So they're going to have to come in and kill it in the third series. And some of the other dogs that are going in the third series in a better position are going to have to wash out. Gotcha. What constitutes killing it? What does it look like? If you had a perfect run first, second and third series, what does that look like? Um, well, you know, involves humans. So we all have a, have an opinion of that. And it's one of the great, you know, maybe inconsistencies that bothers people. I personally like it, to be honest. I, I, I like the fact that we all have somewhat of a different opinion. I think it protects the breed, um, but, it, but it can be frustrating. But I think most people would agree that the dog has to have good finds. Um, generally, if they go through three series, they're going to have let's call it six to eight fines. And, you know, if they're going to be in the run and they're probably, they might be able to have a bad find, but if they get two or three bad fines. You know, they're probably going to get knocked, knocked down a fair bit. What's and a by bad fine, find? Yeah. What's a bad find? Um, you know, a, a pattern fine where they just run into the bird, which, if it, you know, like if I'm judging, if that happened once, uh, you know, I'm not going to fault the dog if he's running the wind properly. And, you know, sometimes birds just, they're just out there, right? But if it keeps happening, you have to question whether or not the dog is actually efficiently covering the ground. But, you know, a bad find would be, you know, let's say you're going right into the wind and the dog's doing a windshield wiper and he runs past and the bird just gets up and the dog never indicated it. Well, he didn't pass the bird. So, you know, he's not out. Um, but that's not a good find. You know, in the, in the worst case, he never even knew the bird was there. He just missed it. Or, you know, he found it really close. He didn't find it, you know, from 10, 15, 20 yards type of thing. So for me, and I'll leave it for me because, you know, this is riddled with opinion, but, you know, there's two components to the find. I've heard, you know, an old, an old judge with a lot of experience use the term nose to close. So you have, when did the dog indicate there was a bird and how directly did he go right to putting the bird up? Because right? a lot of dogs will find the bird at distance, but it takes them a while to pinpoint it and put it up. Well, that's not as good as a dog that finds it from great distance and runs right to it and puts it up. Right. So, you know, you need to have good finds. Um, good finds, you know, to a large part are tied to how well the dog runs the wind and efficiently uses, you know, his ground coverage. Um, you got to make your retrieves. Um Again, for me, I'm not, you know, dog doesn't have to pinpoint every single retrieve, but he's going to make quick work of it, you know, um, and he's got to use his head. So a lot of times they might be just off on the wrong side of the wind. Well, you know, if they go by it, I don't want to go 100 yards by it. <laughs> they should have some awareness of distance and be able to turn around real quick and come back on the right side of the wind and grab the bird. Uh, but you got to, you know, you got to have good retrieves. And then the stuff that, 
a lot of people get worried about, particularly new people, like the dog breaking, um, you know, the dog honoring, um, the control, the you know, kind of these nitpicky things, let's say. Um, you know, that's it's just it's inconsequential because you can't finish if your dog hasn't done all those things. So I don't know why anybody worries about those things because, you know, it's just training and you, you know, you can't even be in the discussion if your dog doesn't do it. So, um, yeah, I think worry about making sure you have the right dog and it's developed properly and it, you know, knows how to find game. That's really the key. Interesting. Um, before I jump into that topic, are you guys using chucker during this? Um, in the fall, it's almost exclusively pheasants and the national is on, is on pheasant. Um, in the spring, um, the bulk of it is pheasants, but you know, pheasants start laying eggs, cover can, can be a problem. Uh, you know, they have been using chucker here for, you know, for some years, but I bet over the course of the year, it's still 75% plus pheasants. All right. Again, before we get into the next topic, I feel like I've done a ton of work with pen raised pheasants, and it's like they suck. Well, it depends on where you get them, and and all those types of things. Yeah, I mean, trust dogs me, get nitpicked if they you know catch a bird, right? Like it doesn't flush, and they just um, pin it down and grab well, it. Well, I think that gets under the category of opportunity. So I had a dog one time, he had four pickups in the first series, four pickups in the second series, and he get called back to the third. You know, the, you know, if I'm judging, I, that's not the dog's fault. But, you know, retrieving is, is part of the game. And if they've got a bunch of other dogs that are getting retrieves, I just think the reality is they've got a bigger book of work on those other dogs and they like them. Uh, you know, I don't take it too personal. So it, there's no rule that says that's a penalty, but I think, it, you know, if you don't, you can't win if you don't have opportunity. you got to have opportunities. The other piece to the opportunity, though, is I think we have more opportunity than we're willing to admit, and we just don't make use of it sometimes, like downwind. Right? It's hard to run downwind and look good doing it. Well, that's an opportunity. You go out there and kill it downwind, you know, it's going to stand out. But you know, we, we tend as a group not to think of that as an opportunity. We tend to think of that as bad luck. Gotcha. So, you know, work yeah. harder. Yeah. All right. So now uh, let's talk about development of a field trial prospect and the art of breeding, the art of picking a puppy, and the art of developing that puppy to its full potential in your eyes. Um, so we don't personally, there's nothing that we do that is trying to develop a field trial prospect. We're trying to develop gun dogs. I don't think there's a difference. I'm willing to admit that, you know, if you're going to go hunt your dog for four hours a day, it's going to be hard to show up on Saturday and compete with your dog in the field trial. They, you know, the gun dogs learn to pace themselves and so forth, but the actual development, I don't think there's a difference. The vast majority of the trial dogs are not hunted. All of ours hunt. The year we won the national with Riot, he hunted every day in Iowa and wild game for six weeks. We left Iowa, drove to Maryland, and won the national. Okay, I just—it's a—it's a chip on my shoulder. I'm a gun dog guy. I think we're supposed to be testing the best gun dogs, and so under no circumstance am I ever going to stop hunting our dogs. Um, 
that being said, uh, the breathing uh, goes a long way. Although I'm not a breeder, we have some litters. Uh, true breeders are, are few and far between, and that's a, that's a tough road. I have a lot of appreciation for them. Um, there's a lot more of just, I'll just breed good to good. And, you know, that isn't always the best system. Um, but I do think that when, what I look for, we take a lot of, I don't want to call them chances, but, uh, you know, I'm not that big on titles and dogs. I mean, I'm bigger on, I know that dog, that dog, that dog. I know all the skeletons in the background of how that dog was developed and, and so forth. I like those breedings. Okay. Cause I feel, you know, I've got a better chance knowing what the up and down side is and what to look for. Um, as opposed to, uh, you know, even I, I go to a field trial and I, you know, obviously there's a lot of people running field trials that I really respect. Um, but they get paid just like me to cover up flaws. <laughs> okay. That's what we get paid to do and to try to make these dogs look good. I'm never going to know what really went into developing that dog that I see out there running that I like. Okay. So the titles are just, you know, it shows me that the dog's been competing and maybe I can call some people if I don't know that dog for some reason. But I think, I think everybody is much better off if they have some firsthand knowledge or people that they trust have firsthand knowledge with a bunch of the dogs in the pedigree. I think that's really what people should be looking for. Yeah, um, I think uh, you know, if I could jump in for a second, I, I think that's a phenomenal standpoint and probably a lot easier to do in a niche breed. Yeah. And being a leader in that breed. And and I, I've got a, a good friend. He's been on the podcast a bunch. His name is Blaine Tarnacki, and he specializes in Boykin Spaniels. And and Blaine has competed at the Boykin National and, and won, and he's got more master hunters and HRCHs than anybody else. And he can just knowing the pedigrees and knowing who trained the parents and grandparents and, and 15 years ago, knowing that dog's great grandfather, be like, that's where that comes from. That's where that comes from. And, and we'll be training together and he'll be like, yep, that's that dog. Yep. Do you see that dog that came from that dog and look at this dog run and that's that dog. And he can, the personality traits in a small niche breed are so much more evident than than a labrador because it's the number one breed in america and yeah we got field champions and yeah we got master hunters and hrchs and you know you made a comment about breeding a good dog to a good dog and i think in the lab world it's kind of easy to do that and they kind of get lost in translation where in the number of people you couldn't possibly know all the players that's right and in at least in the Boykin world, it's like 10 guys and gals, right? Like yeah. 10 of the top people in the country, you, you, you can pick them. And, and yep. I'm sure it's sort of similar in the Spaniel world. What is it? 20, 25 people are showing up in the same nationals crushing it or 10? Um, no, definitely not, not 25, but there's, you know, there's, there's probably 25 pros. 
okay, right, you know, around the country. Um, there's probably, I don't know, five to 10 amateurs that are every bit as good as the pros, just like in the lab world, right? There's amateurs that they're just not pros because they choose not to be. Right. Um, uh, you know, there's an amateur, uh, Jeff Miller, he's won more nationals than anybody. I mean, he's as good as it gets, <laughs> you know, he just, you know, why be a pro if you don't have to be kind of. So, um, but I think that, you know, tied to that though is the flip side and listening to you talk about, you know, the boy, the Boykin situation, you know, it's something that I wrestle with because you know so much, you have to really be careful that we're not portraying something to be a fact that maybe that didn't come from such and such a dog, or maybe it's just an anomaly, right? I mean, there's always those things that we need to be careful of, but I do think that, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Public, who, you know, clearly doesn't have access to the same information that I have, you know, if they're looking for a gun dog and they, you know, they've got a friend that has springers and they hunt with them all the time and he's had springers for 30 years and he, and he's hunted over five, six, eight of that person's dogs and they always put birds in the bag for him and he likes those dogs. Why would you go look anyplace else? <laughs> I mean, okay. you know, those dogs, you've seen those dogs, you know, okay, great. They're not national champions. What difference does it make? You're looking for a dog that you can go hunt and put birds in the bag. Okay. So, uh, you know, from a breeding standpoint, I, I just, I believe in that. Now, the people that are truly breeders that are trying to change the breed, clean things up. I mean, that's, that's a tough road. And, I, you know, I am not that. Okay. I would just, you know, we do all the health tests and so forth. But, you know, I'm not looking 25 years down the road and this and that. I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm trying to make sure we have healthy dogs um, from, you know, breedings of dogs that I've personally put together and I know the background on or from people that, you know, I trust um, so that we can continue to put healthy quality dogs out there. But as far as changing things and all these, you know, big utopian views that breeders have to deal with, we are not that. Definitely not that. Right. So, all right. Uh, I, Bob Owens, buy a Springer Spaniel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I bought it from a buddy of yours. I got high hopes for it. I'm going to raise it in my home. What are you going to tell me to do? Um, well, definitely raise it in your home. Okay. Uh, first thing is get some education. So, uh, the number one thing is that, um, I think all dogs should live in the house. Obviously we're, you know, commercial business, so that's not going to happen when there's a lot of dogs. Uh, but the benefit of the dog being in the house is you get more opportunities to learn the dog and the dog has more opportunities to learn you. The downside is that you have to be committed to the consistency that's required. That's fair to the dog. I don't believe that consistency is just as simple as that's how you train. I think it's what's fair to the dog. How can you, how can it be fair to the dog to have an expectation of X one day and an expectation of of Y a different day? So some days the dog can be on the couch and then when you feel aggravated, the dog can't be on the couch. It's not fair to the dog. And those, those things get difficult in the house. And if you got family and, you know, and kids and it, it gets, 
you know, it gets complicated. So the first thing we talk with people is that you got to have structure so the dog clearly understands what the expectations are. Um, once that education soapbox stuff is done, um, I mean, we go to the clicker and treats right away. The entire first year, all we're doing is clicker and treats. Our dogs are never corrected in the first year for anything. I'm with you. Uh, I'm different. That doesn't make me right, wrong, or indifferent. Sure, sure. Um, all right. Why? Why Why a whole year? No corrections. Okay. okay. So, you know, let's use a year as a general term, right? Could it be 11 months? Could it be three? I mean, it depends on the dog. Nothing's absolute. But generally, a year. So what's going to happen is... At 5 a.m. every and, morning. And may I just add to like, and what are you teaching them? And what are the mistakes they make that you would let slide? Like, those are things that I would ask. Okay. So I'm going to let everything fly. Just view it as absolutely everything. Zero rules except for what I am working on. And the only thing I'm working on is building a confident student. We're clearly given structure. But I bet the I bet the puppy is going to be about six months before I introduce any verbal cue. But I'm shaping behaviors for sure. I'm just not putting a cue on it yet because I believe the more that a dog will do for itself, the more the dog will want to do it later on when I ask the dog to do it. I agree. So if I if I can get a dog in the Spaniel world we use hop instead of sit, but it doesn't matter, sit or hop, same thing. If 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 I can get a dog sitting off of my body language, if I can get a dog sitting because it wants a piece of kibble and the dog does it over and over and over again, well then later on when I ask the dog to sit at a time that it doesn't want to do it, so now I have to deal with aversion training, which we all need to do the dog is going to view that as less pressure than if the dog already has resentment in sitting before I even get to aversion training. Okay. So at seven and a half weeks, we start and at 5 a.m. every morning with those puppies, all of our puppies are in the house. So this cocker litter that's coming, I think we got four puppies staying here for the puppy program. So all four of those will be in the house. And one of the times at 5 a.m., take one out first I get them used to the clicker then I start getting them to offer behaviors so I'm just hanging out in the kitchen and when the dog you know sits in front of me which it will do because it's you know six inches off the ground and I'm you know 510 or whatever I am right that can be intimidated in the dog the dog's gonna sit I'm gonna click give it the treat it won't take but two or three sessions that dog is sitting on its own trying to earn the treat that's what I mean by shaping behaviors. Now, I'm going to want that dog to sit down the road, right? We all do. So if I can get the dog to think he's choosing to do it, that's going to help me down the road. So that whole first year, that is all we're doing. We're going to be working on sit. We're going to be working on um, here. We're going to be working on going in a kennel. We're going to be working on carrying objects. But it's all going to be done with the clicker and treats. So what I wouldn't correct for, you were looking for an example. So let's say I'm working on a place board outside. <laughs> Excuse me. 
you know, puppies get bored. They get distracted. They hear dogs in the kennel. They, you know, hear the vet, whatever's going on. So the puppy no longer is working. It just runs off. I'm just going to stand there. I'm not going to call the puppy. I'm not going to tell the puppy no. I'm not going to say, hey, hey, get over here. Nothing. I'm just going to stand there. And when the puppy comes back, sees the body posture, gets on the place board and sits, I'm going to click and give her the treat. So what's remarkable about that is that typically, now there are anomalies, right? Genetics play a part of this, but but typically as that dog approaches a year of age, you have what most people want for a hunting dog. And go to the field, dog runs around, quests, finds birds, flushes them, chases them, shoot them, and brings them back. I can say, you know, excuse me, by that time we're starting to, you know, we will introduce verbal cues, but no enforcement of it. So if I was in the field, I can just say, here, 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 here. It's really just noise. Puppy turns and comes back. I can say, kennel, 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 and the dog goes in the kennel, or hop, 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 or, you know, whatever it is. We use a touch stick for healing. Our dogs don't get a leash until probably, I don't know, maybe seven plus months before they ever get a leash put on them. I live in the middle of nowhere. I don't live in the suburbs. I'm not saying that, you know, individual dog owners that live in different situations, you know, they have to modify what we do. They can't do everything that we do the way we do it because the dog's going to get killed. But as a general rule, this is how we're doing it. Remember the lab, everything is going to be done from your side for the most part. Okay. So Dog's going to be next to you, and you're going to be sending it for retrieves. It's going to be marking game. You're going to be sending it for retrieves. We're talking about retrievers, not up and left. Well, for us, almost everything the dog does, other than bringing the bird back, is going to be done away from us. Right. So they need to be comfortable and being away from us, being away and hunting. Yep. A little bit of independence. Absolutely. Because they're going to have to figure things out away from us. So I don't want to make us the safe zone. But what's remarkable is the less you try to keep them near you, the more comfortable they are coming back to you. It's a very hard concept for me to get, a, get through the people that we're working with. You know, we're human, so we want to control everything. And some of it's safety, and I, you know, I understand that. But I think of it as like the kid with the cookie jar. Kid has no interest in cookies. But if you tell the kid, hey, I just made cookies, leave them in there because they're for the party this weekend, every kid out there wants those cookies. Well, it's the same thing with puppies. If all you do is try to keep them from running off, anytime they can get loose, all they want to do is run off. So they can run off all they want. I could care less. And then they, they stop doing it. They realize, you know, there's no reason to do that. It's the old pointing dog theory. Those people would go out to the prairies. No pointer was going to outrun the prairie. Right. It became, you know, it got old. They stopped doing it. That's it. Uh, uh, I'm a, sort of at a loss for words because I think differently. And I, I think most of what you're saying makes complete sense to me. And when I'm putting it in my perspective of I've got a six-month-old puppy, really never been on a leash, only had treat training, mainly socialization, 
other than jumping on us and nipping, like she doesn't know the word no, right? She doesn't do anything really wrong because she's a puppy. And therefore, when we're walking around, she just hangs out. She doesn't run away and she doesn't do anything stupid. I get it. But then again, I'm a dog trainer. And I got the jackass that does run away. And I got the jackass that does pull on the leash. And the one that can't sit still because it's fidgeting. And I think you're right that a lot of that is how they're raised. But then again, I have done it enough where it just is who they are. And I... Yeah, the genetics, there's definitely genetics involved. Yeah, and I just find it interesting because, like, I can, I can, I mean, I'm sitting here listening to you and I go, man, I can't be that patient. If they run off that place board, my first instinct is, no, come here, 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 place, good, all right, there, there's your treat. And I'm cueing them and praising them and I'm not correcting them really. But I'm getting them back on there and showing them that that's where I want them and not. And it would be, like, so freaking hard for me to watch them just, like, dilly-dally around the yard until they decide <laughs> that it's time to get back on that thingy. You know what I mean? I, and that's really hard for me. And so talk to my listeners and be like, no, but just be patient. Wait 20 minutes. Wait 10 minutes. I don't know. Because I, I don't. Well, I can't do it. <laughs> I don't know. I can't do it. Well, let's not forget that you're dealing with a different breed, too. Okay, so the spaniel, you know, they got squirrels in their head, right? The the hamster is always on the wheel. Same here. I mean, their head, okay, (laughs) but they can't, they tend not to be able to handle the structure like a lab. Okay, so they're, they're much softer. So you have to be careful if you want to keep their style. Now, don't get me wrong. We have two types of dogs. We have dogs we're developing. That's what we like to do. Those are, you know, our breedings and a bunch of dogs, you know, people we know, they send their dogs to us. We're developing those dogs. There also are dogs that come in for, you know, we have a four month minimum. Okay. Well, if that dog comes in and it's 13 months old, there is no chance I can develop that dog the way that we typically do things. It's just not possible. Right. So clearly I can't, be that patient, right? Not, not every client's going to pay you monthly. They just keep handing out treats, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the reality of the, of the business. It's the reality of the business. However, when we do our seminars and, you know, you're, you're talking to me about what we do, I view it as this is what I think is best for our Spaniels. This is what we do. So, you know, I'm laying out because if somebody has one dog, they can do this. Right. It's yeah. their dog. They can do it. Nobody's clamoring. Hey, when's this going to be done? When am I going to get my dog back or any of those types of things? And it is possible. Okay. Now if they get a knockhead, they get a knockhead. That's just the way it goes. That's the, <laughs> that's the risk of puppies. That's a risk of my whole dog truck, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I understand. I I'm picking up what you're putting down now. It's, it's when you're developing that young dog, like I've got my six month old, I've done it myself and I've been patient and we've built a dog that is comprehending concepts, if you will, and scenarios and working through it and being patient with the timing. But when you get that year old, year and a half old dog that has zero, now we've got to 
do a little bit different, but same approach, but just a little bit different. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. No, you're, you're really, you're really trying to, you know, I view it as, you know, those dogs always come with baggage. Sometimes it's serious baggage. Sometimes it's not, but you know, a lot of times you're breaking cycles is what it comes down to. Well, what we're trying to do is not let the baggage develop. Right. I right. Agree. And if, the, if you get them at seven and a half weeks, and you're allowed the time to properly develop them, you limit you, you know, significantly limit the baggage that comes back and costs you later on. We're really big on problem solving because again, the dog's going to be away from us. They're going to have to solve problems out there. So I believe that if you can create a dog that problem solves, that's going to pay dividends down the road. So anytime we want the dog to do something that creates a problem for the dog, or we don't view it that way, but it is because there isn't a dog out there that wants to sit for the owner. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't exist. It's a fallacy. I mean, how often do you see dogs sitting just for the sake of it? They lay down, you know, right. but they, you know, they run around, but how often you drive down the road, you know, it's not often you see a dog just sitting out on the side of the road or in the yard or something. I mean, it's just, it's not, it typically isn't something that they do just because they feel like doing it yet. We want them to sit all the time. Well, that's a problem for a dog. We, we, all of us with all the breeds, we're all asking them to do things that are not genetic in your retriever world, right? They'll set the test up so that you have to go across the slope of the hill. Well, there's nothing genetic about that. <laughs> Excuse me. If you go out and you look at wildlife, they're always on the top of the hill or the bottom. They never run across the slope. Look at all the game trails. Right. It yeah. just, it, it doesn't happen. I understand why the testers, right? It's a, it's a test. That's why they do that. But, but that's not natural. So you're, you're fighting, gen- we're all fighting genetics. A flushing dog, there's not a flushing dog out there that's born to be steady. That's a man-made thing. Flushing dogs were born to chase. That's right. Right. But, but we teach them, we develop them to be steady, the wing and shot. Okay. So because we're fighting all of these genetics, those are problems for the dog. So they're going to have to problem solve. So we want to make sure that we're creating a problem solver right from the get-go because the studies show by 16 weeks, their brain is developed like an adult. doesn't mean they have the focus of an adult or the maturity or any of those things, but the brain has developed almost to an adult level. That means our window of opportunity is really small. So we want to get them going on the right path to try new things. Keep trying, keep trying, come on, figure it out. Keep trying, keep trying. So they won't quit later on. I think, I, yeah, uh, I agree. Now in your world, you kind of started to talk about it where no corrections, live life, at its fullest, earning treats, problem solving, first year, they're developing this confidence, this problem solving ability. Your, what I would like to hear from you is, I got, I got a bunch of dogs, and they're they're really good, and now we're we're working the field work, the fun stuff, not the puppy stuff, not the yard work, the field work. What does that look like for a cocker or a cock, excuse me, a cocker and a springer flushing? Like, 
our pop traps, you know, what, what is it? Like we go to the field, me and you, what are we doing? Are we talking still the, that first year a piece? Both, I guess. Okay. So first year puppies, generally we're going to introduce them to birds. Uh, we're going to start giving them birds probably eight, eight weeks, nine weeks, you know, first we'll give them a, you know, a, you know, a dead bird right away. And then, then we'll get a clip wing so they're comfortable with the flap and then we'll build this over so that let's say by four weeks, they actually can flush pigeons and quail. Okay. We're not giving them pheasant or chucker or, you know, just, you know, pigeons and quail. Pigeons tend to have a soft flush. Quail is actually a more aggressive flush, but it's a smaller bird. Once they're comfortable with the quail, we go, we run Johnny houses. So I'll go out to the Johnny house. I'll let a bunch of birds out. I'll go get the puppies and I'll just start walking. We never, ever, not once speak to the dog. We're just going to walk around and let the dog find, find birds and they're going to smell them. And they'll probably stop and go, what is that? Or then they'll flush a bird and they'll get up and they'll go, whoa, what was that? And then they'll start chasing them. And then after they chase them, they'll come back to where they flushed the bird usually because like, well, wait a minute, I'll go back to where that bird was because I don't know where it went anymore. Uh, then, you know, when they're young, they may keep trying to hang around the Johnny house because, you know, there's always birds around the Johnny house. But in very quick order, they start to realize it's a lot more fun to go out and find the birds than to just get them at the Johnny house. So now they're actually starting to learn to hunt. Probably at, hmm, let's call it nine, 10, 11 months, we'll do gun introduction. You know, go through the process there, you know, start off far away with, you know, blanks and move closer and then go to, you know, a 20 gauge and so forth. Typical you know, gun introduction stuff. Um, so that we can then go put, you know, some pigeons or quail out and, and shoot some birds for the dog. Um, once they are at the end of our puppy program, that's now a dog that we can take hunting, right? And hunting just means they can run around and find game. We can make noise to get their attention. And, but you know, they're, they're aware of us. If, if we sat down behind a tree, they're not going to take off. They come looking for us because we've built that relationship over that, over that year. Right. Um, you know, they're, they're questing. And so then if that's a dog that somebody owns, you know, say in the puppy program, then that dog goes home. And when they're done 11, 12 months, that dog's going to go home. We, we, we require it to go home and it's going to go home for, I don't know, three or four months. Uh, get acclimated in the house. You know, it was in our house, but it hasn't been in their house. And they, the puppies tend to be in our house till about six months, and then they go out to the kennel. Um, so they get acclimated. You know, there's going to be lifestyle things that are going to be different than here, and we have a very simple, structured daily routine. It's the same pretty much every day. Well, you know, they may ride to the post office with their owner. They may, you know, go to the park. They may, you know, people live in suburbs and they got to, you know, they go for walks and just all the various things that people do. Um, the other thing is that if the owner can't do the simple games that we've developed with the dog, it makes no sense for that owner to spend more money with us for advanced training. <laughs> They're not going to be able to maintain that either. So this is kind of a time frame to transition, make sure the owner, you know, can do the rudimentary things. The second 
phase and now the dog comes back um like you know these cocker pups that, that came back a couple months ago so now they're going to start you know formal training right so uh we call a condition all the dogs unless the owner insists that we don't do it um our collar condition is done in the yard uh i'm i'm pro collar um i think collar properly used is is a great training tool uh, but the reality is we essentially use it just for our formal obedience in the yard. After that, I mean, dogs wear them generally till about age three. I don't want them to get collar-wise, so I'm going to keep wearing it. Uh, although I use other corrective modes more so than any collar after that. But I don't want to lose that tool down the road. And I don't want the dog to figure out that just when I put the collar on, then it has to listen. So I personally believe that dogs get collar-wise because you take it off not because you put it on that's right i agree so um so they're gonna you know they're gonna wear it but our collar conditioning is done in the yard that's our formal you know yard obedience um we're gonna get them going back in the field because now they got to be obedient in the field as well and then you know we'll and introduce some more birds some birds forms to make sure they have the general obedience even around the excitement of birds and then we start working on ground coverage and you know the again the the spaniels, they're supposed to find game. And aside from the genetic gift or not of nose, uh, the most, you know, most birds are going to be found if they effectively cover the ground. Uh, the young dogs, we're going to run them almost exclusively downwind. Um, any quality dog should be able to figure out how to run into the wind. Running downwind is really hard. So at a young age, we want them to get comfortable stretching out away from us so that they can get downwind of the birds and turn back into the wind and find game. So we're going to spend a lot of time on that. And, you know, we have various exercises that we, you know, that we set up to encourage that and help that and, and set the birds in a spot where hopefully they can make some associations. Wow. When I punched out like that and turned into the wind, there was a bird. Maybe I'll keep doing that. You know, those types of things. Sure. Um, and then the dogs have to go home again. So, uh, because again, we're at another breaking point where the owners, if the owner can't manage the dog at that level, again, no reason to keep spending. So, uh, the dog's got to go home. Uh, we try to do that around gun season so that they can go hunt their dog unsteady. And if the dog, you know, at that point, you know, it's, it's, it's a really nice gun dog. (laughs) Excuse me. Um, and then for the ones at that point that um, are really nice gun dogs, but have something different about them, um, you know, we'd, we'd like to see if they can compete. I mean, it's supposed to be a test of who we should be breeding. So uh, they'll come back for, you know, truly advanced training and, you know, start running them in trials and see if they can put it together. That's, uh, I would say that's extremely similar to how I do it extremely similar they're young dogs kind of ready to hunt ready to hunt they can do the basics and they're a good family member obedient then we start putting things together to do more work and then they go home and hunt and enjoy family and then if they want to really do it it's game time and we really do it it's exactly the same thing so I would say from my understanding, you're looking at one year is the basic, two year is pretty advanced, 
year three, four, five, six, seven is let's rock and roll and win a trial. Um, pretty similar. So we have generally, you know, in our printed material, three phases. And so the first phase, you know, we talk about building a relationship with the dog and that's that first year. And then in the second phase, which generally is about six months, we talk about building a foundation. Okay. So that would be the formal obedience and so forth. Um, getting the dog hunting, uh, and hunting in control. All right. So now when you tell the dog something, it has to comply. Right. And then we have the third phase, which is, you know, essentially after 18 months and it just goes on until the, you know, until the dog just maxes out. And, and then that is, you know, where all the polish and the steady, the winged shot and those types of things, you know, come into play. But I, I'm sure you find the same thing that, you know, let's say we start with 10 dogs in that first year. You know, we're going to lose some of those, you know, they're just going to work themselves out. They're just going to show us that, you know, this isn't a dog that's, you know, biddable enough or talented enough. So it's just going to be, you know, a nice dog. Someone can go hunt and enjoy with their family. And so let's say we're down to, you know, seven dogs or whatever out of 10. And then we're going to go to the, you know, year, the 18 month type of thing. And now the dogs have to start dealing with pressure as opposed to, you know, doing it because they're choosing to, how we set up that first year. Now they got to do it when they're told, which becomes pressure for the dog. And how are they going to deal with that pressure? Well, now we're going to lose some more of those seven dogs because not all dogs can deal with pressure. And I don't mean heavy-handed pressure because if it's done right, pressure is just pressure for the dog. It's not, you know, level one or level eight really isn't that different for the dog if they understand how to deal with it. But some dogs just can't deal with it. So we're going to lose some of those dogs. So you're going to be left with a much smaller group to try to get to that finished level than what you started with. But the dogs themselves, forget about the whole client dynamic of some people want to do this and some don't and so forth. The dogs themselves will separate. Yeah. And that's, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for the dogs that separate themselves. Yeah. You can, I feel like you could arguably say you could know that even earlier but then some mature different and i i agree with you i I think that that's a very steadfast way of looking at it now do you force fetch the spaniels we never force fetch anymore we used to force we used to force fetch all the dogs because when i was guiding you know someone's paying us a thousand dollars a day to find wild game you know it's the only hunting trip they have that one cripple my dog drops and we can't find like the only bird the sport shot right so my dogs are not going to drop birds but now because i'm not guiding right i just i weed them out if, if they're not going to you know have an acceptable mouth then i already know i'm not going to breed that dog so i just weed them out and if the retrieve is sloppy but it's okay for the owner then yeah it doesn't really matter to me if they want it fixed then I will force break, but only because, you know, the owner wants me to fix something, not because I'm looking to go, to go do that. But all of our dogs, again, back to the seven and a half week old, the dogs that are in development, we have, you know, six month shaped behavior deal that we do with the clicker and treats. Gotcha. So it looks just like the dog is force break. We can do, um, you know, stick fetch. Uh, we can do walk and fetch. We, you know, we do all that stuff, but we just do it with clicker and treats. 
Gotcha. Cool. Different method, way to skin the cat, but at the end, the product is the same. Oh, that's, I mean, that's what's great about it. I mean, there's you know, different ways to do it, and no one's got a patent on it, that's for sure. <laughs> no, and the old adage of, what is it, uh, three dog trainers are at a bar, and the only thing they can agree on is that they're all wrong or something like that? No, they're all right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that there's so many ways to skin the cat and it, it all matters that we all are successful at what we do. But you said it earlier, I think, you know, we don't do, we don't do any social media or I don't think we, I, I know I don't do any social media. I don't know about Christina, um, but, uh, you know, the reason I don't is because it, it just becomes tit for tat and everybody wants to make sure they get their last word and how they view it. And, and like I said, 10 years ago, I knew a whole lot more than I do now. You're a very wise man, my friend. <laughs> you pay the price enough. You pick up a few things. I hear you. I hear you. Plus, you're a New Englander that moved to the South, so you got to be smart. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's hot in July. <laughs> <laughs> How many times have you been called a damn Yankee? Uh, not much. I don't socialize much. <laughs> Even smarter. Even smarter. <laughs> Well, Todd, I appreciate your time tonight. It was a really informative show, and I appreciate learning a ton about your world because I don't know a lot about it, and I absolutely love watching Springer's work a field and, and do what they're meant to do, and it's so fun. So what I would ask you to do is not only tell everybody where they can find you, but like, where can they find the creme de la creme YouTube videos, where can they watch like the best of the best do what they're bred to do. And that's what you're about. So, so help everybody find you and then find where they can learn more about your niche of the sport. Okay. So we're at spaniel Um, don't ask me what's on our website. I know there's some various tidbit stuff and videos and you know, that's Christina's deal, but there, you know, there's some stuff on there. Um, but you know, YouTube has an endless supply. Um, I don't go on there. I don't know what's good and what isn't, but clearly you could, you know, they could just search, you know, spaniel training. Um, we don't have much on there. It's just not what we do. Um, the only thing I would say is that I know there's a lot of stuff on there from the UK and their stuff is different. Uh, no better, no worse. They got different cover. They have a different system. You know, there's not much rough shooting out there and, you know, everything's about doing stuff for the guns. So, you know, the dogs are going to run differently, uh, much closer and so forth. Um, but they're also going to have to deal with a, a lot of birds getting up and they have to, you know, keep their head and so forth. So, I mean, there is a lot of that out there. I know, um, you know, it's YouTube and a lot of it's free. So, you know, there's a lot of amateurs putting stuff out there and you're going to get the full gamut. Some of it's good and some of it probably isn't so good. Um, so I think they can do that. There's, you know, there's some UK, uh, training videos and so forth. I don't know who's got training videos out there. You know, everyone's trying to pedal stuff, but you know, it's just not big business. So it's kind of hard, I think for, you know, for, for trainers to really vest that much time. It's the old adage, you know, those that can't teach, well, if you're spending all your time putting training material together, you know, how much you're out there actually training, so to speak. So, 
Um, but there was, you know, there, there was some of it out there. We've got a little training manual, you know, lots of people have some little training stuff, you know, um, out there. Um, but you know, the, the biggest thing that people should do, they just go get with some other people, go get with some people that know, you know, the North in particular, there's lots of Spaniel people up there. There's a lot of really good Spaniel people up there. Um, up in your neck of the woods, the amateur national this year is, uh, right over in the Finger Lakes, um, national forest. Is that what they call that up there? Um, I forget which lake it's just off of. It's, um, this year it's going to be in Lodi, I think is the name of the town. Okay. Uh, and that's in mid November. So cool. there'll be, you know, 100 plus Spaniels running that national up there. The Cocker National is in New Jersey this year. That's, uh, first week in November, I believe. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff around. So will you be up here in November? Um, not for the amateur because we can't run the amateur. Oh, that, yeah, so if he opens out in Kansas, we will be running at the Cocker National. Or I think we will be. Um, I mean, we got dogs qualified, but um, uh, we're headed up to uh, around Bath here in a couple weeks to run, or I guess maybe it's almost a month. Um, you know, Bath, there's, New there's York. Yeah, yeah. Right. So the trials are winding down, you know, for the spring, uh, but come the fall, you know, come September, they'll. You know, they'll start up again up there. And like I said, there's two nationals up, you know, in the east this year, the, between the Cocker and the and the amateur, the amateur Springer. So That's super cool. Well, I would like to maybe make my way over to Bath. That's uh, about an hour and a half, two hours away. So I might have to make my way that, that part of the New York, see it okay. in person. It's pretty, you know, it's like anything, right? If you're a dog guy. You All dogs it. are exciting. That's right. You know, we've got we've got a, a client, you know, up in New York that you know the the dog we're able to win the national with, but she won the Canadian Amateur National with the dog as well, and she took us. She's a member of, uh, of a, a historical hound club, beagling club in Virginia. You know, so she took us over there one year. We watched the Basset Hounds run. It was awesome. It was, it was not like what you would think of bass. It's nothing like what I had in my mind. I mean, these dogs out there, they hunted, you know, the judges were on horseback, but the whipper ends and stuff, you know, they were all on foot and it was really cool. So I think, you know, if you're a dog guy, you can pretty much appreciate almost anything. We went, we watched um, a lady work the sheepdog. She runs the sheepdog circuit. Really cool. Yeah. Really cool. So, uh, you know, we all have something to offer if, uh, if people are open-minded. I love it. Well, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your knowledge and I appreciate everything that you brought to our listeners. So thank you for joining us tonight. Again, it was SpanielTraining.net.com.com. SpanielTraining.com. Check them out. Do you have Instagram and all that stuff? No, we don't do any of that. Ah, big man. All right. I dig it. SpanielTraining.com. Check them out. If they want to, I mean, I know that you kind of mentioned this before, but you don't have a lot of litters and you're very specific, but, but if, if they have questions and are interested in this breed, I'm assuming they can reach out to you and you can guide them. Yeah. Well, you know, we'll, we'll try, obviously, you know, we're busy like everybody, but, uh, yeah, you know, as long as they're not just glomming time and sure, we'll try to point them in the right direction. You know, the AKC has a lot of literature on, you know, on any breeds, right. And, and contacts of, of people, there's, you know, ESSFT.com is the Springer field trial kind of website. The, um, let's see, uh, field cockers, I believe it's plural.com is the cocker website. 
Um, and you know, I don't do Facebook, but I know there's a gazillion Facebook group things as well out there. Awesome. Well, I can't thank you enough for being a part of our show and uh, for my fellow Yukonuba guy. I appreciate you very, very much in your time and, and everything that you've accomplished in your game is, is impressive. So thank you for being a part of it. And until the next time, I hope to see you around and I'd love to run dogs with you. All right. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Hey, do me a solid. If you enjoy the show, if you enjoy our Instagram, if we've helped you at all, join patreon.com forward slash lone duck outfitters. If you do it before September of 2023, you're going to enter to win a hunt with me and Kevin and a bunch of other Patreon members down in Missouri. We're going to smack some ducks, have some fun, do a seminar with our dogs and have a great time. But jump into patreon.com forward slash lone duck outfitters links in the description and join the community that helps me help you help your dog. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.